Okay, hello everyone, welcome. Um, is there something special happening? Or <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm, make, I'm making it in my mind special. It seems like it's pinkish and uh, very much alive. Huh? It wasn't like this when I was crossing the park uh, 10 minutes ago. And so, yeah, so beautiful. Um, we're together for, um, well, we'll see how long. <laughs> well, it will, be on, it will be under an hour and a half. <laughs> we'll see. Um, um, we're here to uh, practice meditation together and to consider a little bit the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist thoughts and see how it can be uh, relevant for us today. Um, so a few words before, uh, maybe a 20-25 minute sit, a few words on, uh, on mindfulness uh, or insight meditation, which is uh, what we'll, we're doing here today. There's many kinds of meditation with many, uh, may- maybe different goals. Um, this, uh, this kind of meditation here has the goal to um, develop uh, wisdom in a, particular, in a particular way. So it's a particular technique, path. And uh, in the meditation itself, the... What are the few words I could say about it? Is we're not trying to get something or be something or feel something particular. We're not trying. You know, you you. I feel one could easily sit in meditation and think that something particular should be felt or accessed, or uh, you know, that it could be could be like it's supposed to be open and light, bright or spacious or that it should feel good even, like, even that I would challenge. In this practice, we're not here to feel, it might be a byproduct that we're going to feel good, but this particular um, uh, approach in the very much in the, is interested in the pr- what's happening in the present time and to encounter this just as it is. So it means that... Uh, if you come here with, um, I don't know, if you come here with confusion in your life these days, or a heartache, or a heavy heart, it might, it might be that it'll, it'll stay like this. Uh, so you're like, okay, <laughs> so what's the point? Well, the point is not so much, it's uh, how it is encountered, because often... Uh, much of the suffering we have is that feeling of fragmentation that we should feel otherwise, that we should feel something else, that we despise what is there, or that we're not half there, incapable of really encountering reality because we're busy in our mind. And so this practice here is to actually come closer to life as it's happening. And uh, the doorways for us are uh, the senses. So we'll be doing a lot of sensory awareness. And so we'll just allow the sounds of the city, maybe the 
urban symphony to be heard. Just uh, will be guided or will take refuge in uh, wet tires moving on street. <laughs> How amazing is that? Yeah. So this, because that's the real. So we'll connect to that. We'll discover that there's a body sitting, and it might be an achy body, it might be a comfy body, a centered or crooked, <coughs> feeling crooked uh, body. And we'll see if we can allow it to be just like that. For example, I'm a little sick. It's, uh, I'm, on the, I'm, on the, I'm on the way up, or anyway, the worst is behind. But still, you know, there's a heaviness in the body, there's a the heaviness around here. And uh, so chances are it's, I don't know, but it might very well be like this during the meditation. So my job as a meditator will be to see if I can allow that to be there. Instead of maybe having the idea that it should go now, you know, that's been there for four or five days, that's enough now, you know. <laughs> So it's let the relationship to what's happening. So it'll be like this, like, oh, can that be there? In the same way, if my heart was heavy for a reason or another, as I come to sit in meditation, I would say, is that okay if there's this heaviness or this unresolved business that makes the heart a little contracted or hollow? Or it might for you be a day where you, um, you feel particularly light and joyful. So that would be uh, absolutely welcome in the field. Yeah, what is the experience of lightness? You know? Or you might find you in the middle of somebody who's busy, very busy, kind of occupied, preoccupied. You know? And so you'll probably be invited to notice this a few times. You know? And uh, so in this particular practice of mindfulness, um, the attention we bring is a non-judging attention. It doesn't judge... It, even like uh, preferences become uh, are not so valued. It's not about preferences. What is valued is what is here. What is here. And also, we're not even thinking about it. And that might be a big challenge for some of us. We're not, we're not thinking about stuff, we're feeling it. So it's a very particular doorway to reality. It's not reality as I think of it, as I analyze it, understand it. It's reality as I'm uh, experiencing it in the moment, like with the sounds uh, coming from the street. I put words to it, you know, tires on wet ground, but we don't care about the image of tires on wet ground. We, we just want to have the experience of uh, audition hearing, sensing the body. <coughs> Usually for human beings, uh, they do that for a second, and then they depart. So they'll think of this, and then they'll think, oh my God, my car, how is it going to be later? It's going to be colder, maybe I see. <coughs> so human beings, often they touch reality for just one moment, and then they take off in a world of concepts and fictions, story told. And here in this practice, we just see if we can actually stay, and stay, and stay. And that might create a little discomfort in ourselves, because it's unusual. 
Usually we make things out of things, you know. We, have, we hear something and we go with it. We have one thought and we f- follow with many thoughts. And here we're just going to stay with the body breathing. Even there might be a wave of boredom. Oh my <coughs> God. Please. No. There might, if there is a wave of boredom, usually the human being will, will take on the boredom and leave with it. Oh my God, there's nothing happening. There's probably another technique somewhere where it's really stimulating. And, you know, I should have chosen Sufi dancing. And here, if there is an experience of boredom, we stay around and we feel it. That takes uh, heroism, you know, to actually stay and feel a wave of boredom. Ah, nothing's happening. You know, and to stay there, stay there, not conclude, not create opinions, not, uh, you know, start to describe or fix something. Give me a problem to solve, somebody. You know, I'll create one if I have to. So the practice will be just to stay here, to stay here and enter that realm of the real, actually. And we'll talk more about this after. And in that realm, we'll see what is possible. Many say it's the realm where tenderness is possible. It's the realm where compassion, where joy is possible, where there's vibrancy. We're not in ideas about stuff. We start, we're in the, in the world that is uh, sensitive. And that's uh, an access to uh, the fullness of life instead of the cage of ideas and preconceived ideas and expectation and uh, all of the above. Okay? So shall we try this a little bit? Don't try to do this perfectly. That's just another setup. (laughs) It's not going to work because the mind has been trained and is for many years, decades, centuries, no. <laughs> Maybe if we think lifetimes, you know, of being trained into going in uh, storytelling and uh, creations, proliferations of mind. And so if these comes, it, we don't have to be ashamed or be harsh in any way. We can <laughs> rejoice, we can smile, we can become aware, conscious. Oh, et voila, what Pascal was talking about is happening. I'm departing, I'm, I'm getting caught, I'm, the mind is getting lost in imagery, in words, in descriptions, anticipations. And so... Maybe now we're discovering that there is a body here. Not actually the image that we have of the body, but more the river of sensations, the field, the dynamic field of maybe heat or pulsing. the expansions related to in-breathing, 
the slight or deep uh, contractions of exhales even if we uh, let our sensitivity and intelligence and consciousness land in the hands, we're probably going to discover their life, tingling, touch. if we let our attention and consciousness meet uh, the world of uh, hearing or reveal it there too we're going to discover dynamism aliveness life dancing in the form of uh, vibrations. We can joyfully abandon all projects and stories Take refuge in breathing, sensing, or hearing. might even discover the aliveness of attention or curiosity or presence. Notice that, how alive it is in you with listening, with receptivity, with interest.
For a few moments, life takes the form of a sound heard. For another few moments, maybe, or for somebody else, it takes the form of tingling in the hands. Some maybe it takes the form of worrying, others listening. Notice how it transforms for you, what, how it manifests. Taking the form of a breath, of ease or discomfort. See if it can be allowed to be like that, and if it can be fully known, just like that. Sometimes in the dynamic flow of life, mindfulness is gone. And the mind has been caught, seduced, absorbed in some stories. Not happening here, some other places, with other people. And we can wake up to that, become awake to the spell, the trance. mind can get reborn in another universe of the past or a certain future. See if you can land in this body again, alive with breathing, with the sensations of sitting.
Notice the state of your mind, how life is alive in this way, through a mind state. There's always one. It's either quiet or scattered, or friendly or joyful or occupied, preoccupied, worried, caught, gone. Notice the state of your own mind. No judgments, just factual. It's scattered. Things are clear in there. There's lots of interest. Silence. Or scattered. Many things to say about many things. Come back to the breath or the hands or hearing. It, uh, it is quiet and they're still listening in their receptivity if the mind is engaged is encountering sounds or breath and it's quiet enjoy the stability of the mind and heart the non-reactivity 
the ease in there. If what you're experiencing is pleasant, allow yourself to enjoy, to be touched by the sweetness of whatever is happening for you. And if it's difficult, which is often is, maybe it's good to have a friendly mind, a caring mind, or heart, compassionate. Learning how, with benevolence, to hold, with patience, to carry, to make space for what is difficult. Just allow it to be there, if it is. Maybe as we do every time uh, I come here, I'll invite you, if your eyes are closed, to uh, open the eyes for the last few minutes of the meditation and see if there can be the same kind of a presence with eyes open. Can there be, with eyes open, a sense of the body sitting and breathing. So with the dominant uh, sense, not abandoning the felt uh, sense of the body, hands tingling or touching. Belly gently moving with the breath. Can that be felt with eyes open? We allow sounds, sounds from the street, this voice, to appear and disappear. This practice of uh, mindfulness is not uh, is not um, kind of a forgetfulness, like closing the eyes and 
getting lost or off there to, to practice of presence being really there maybe embodied conscious I think it's about um, making the system uh, resonate with what's happening so we don't want to turn things off that's another practice we want to be on tuned in yeah so it's a particular practice because you could think you know like you sit you don't have to move you could just go you know until the bell rings but that's another practice in this practice we're on we know we're sitting maybe we know we're bre- breathing is happening or hearing we know that there's a wave of boredom if there is or a a field or pool of calm if there is we know it's lilinctious in there or caring yeah so we're not invited to uh, be stupid you know during the practice we're invited to be awake in the practice And we're doing this not so it's done and we can forget about it. We're doing this as a preparation for this moment when the bell rings. So that when the formal meditation is over, now I'm on. So I've turned myself on during these 20 or 25 minutes. So I didn't turn myself off. Or when the bell rings, it's not like I'm turning myself up. Okay, we've done it. Now. You know, it's, uh, it's a preparation. And then when the bell rings, okay, now I'm alive. And... I don't know, maybe it's going to be time to go to the grocery, to hear a few words from the teacher or other practitioner, or see the family, or be alone with the cat, but we're going to be on. This is the, the, uh, the goal. The goal is to be really there for life. So it's great that we do this in the new year, that we start, almost start, I mean, 4th of January. (laughs) It's good that we do this at the beginning of the year like this, because it's, hopefully it's going to, it's going to be something we're going to cultivate during the the year, and it might very well become our best friend, our most precious uh, thing in our life, that capacity to be there, to show up, to feel, to allow what is there to be known and be alive in us. Because for many reasons, maybe, we've um, become 
in many ways automatic or disconnected. We removed ourselves from life because it's been disappointing in so many ways and keep being so. <laughs> but uh, the suggestion here the, is, let's see if actually that even though life has been disappointing and will might remain so, even though might it be a better choice to actually be engaged with it than F removed, you know? Is it really truly less painful to be disconnected? Or is there something else that could be possible in a world that doesn't follow exactly what I want all the time, you know, nor internationally or nor very much locally, you know? Is it, uh, could it be? I think that's what I hear being this suggestion here. It's like, maybe it's a good choice. Uh, whatever is arising to actually uh, be there, whatever is happening to actually be there fully for it. Because, and often I present it like this, because in this uh, tuning in, in this showing presence is loads of qualities that are either invited at the same time in that field or uh, cultivated probably both invited and cultivated and uh, these qualities are definitely known as being extremely helpful to meet what is difficult very helpful to meet what is beautiful they make the beautiful more rich, richer, and everything in between. Um, and uh, so, one of the things that do happen, does happen, in this process, is that we get out of the world of concepts, ideas, and not, um, not just a little. Like, I, the more I practice, the more I see that this is a serious change of, uh, I think about it as a change of lineage. I'm in the lineage of those who are in their head, you know, experiencing life from their ideas and preconceived ideas and expectations and fears and anticipations and wants and... Uh, and I'm going from there to being in the lineage of those who are experiencing the world. Uh, and it's a very, very different world. I cannot believe how different it is, one and the other. I really thought before, I was like, yeah, it's a little different, you know, from my ideas about me and the experience of me. And more I practice, more I'm like, oh my God, they have nothing to do with one another, almost. <laughs> seems like even, yeah, that, so I'm talking to you from my inner experience. So, I think I talk about this often, probably if you read anything Buddhist, that's the kind of thoughts that will show up, but um, um, let me start just with this. So in the teaching it says somewhere that um, conceit Conceit is uh, is a problem for a mind. You know, is a source of suffering. 
But the definition of conceit in the Buddhist psychology is a little different maybe than... It's not my language, English, so I'm not sure. You would have to tell me. But in my mind, when I hear conceit, I hear m almost more like arrogance, kind of uh, that kind of like moi, you know? Mm -hmm. In Buddhism, conceit, I think... Uh, I'm probably not mistaken to think that conceit is probably from the same root as conceived. No? Do you think? It sounds certainly similar. No? I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> conceit. So in, Bud in Buddhist psychology, there's three kinds of conceit. There's the conceit, I'm better than. There's the conceit, I'm worse than. And there's the conceit, I'm equal to. I find this so interesting. Because the first one, you would think, yeah, okay, that's a kind of conceit. You know, I'm better than you all, or... You know, I'm better than these people, or we're better than they are, you know, or all of this. But a kind of conceit, the create, to me that's how I think of conceive, why I think of conceive, because it's a creation of a self. I create a certain image of a self, and I buy into it. I think it's me. It's not just an image, it's me. I am like this, you know. And in the and most of us, by the way, I think, from what I've seen after a few years of teaching now, most of well, we we go from one to the other, but most of us suffer from the conceit of less than, which is also a mistaken view. That's how it's presented in Buddhist psychology. Not only is it painful, I mean, it's painful, but it's also absolutely mistaken. And so, and then the third one, even equal to, you would think, but that's fair, that seems like more benevolent or more wise. Or, and in that too, it seems like in the Buddhist thought, it says this is going to be suffering. And why? That's why, again, I make the link with conceiving, because there's a conception of a self, there's a separation, there's a I'm there, you're there, we're equal or you're above, or uh, you're below, but there's a conceiving of a self. And this activity is so happening, is so, so much in our life. Like, for example, uh, or, or just not an example, but let's think you sit here for 25 minutes and there's no instructions. I wonder what you would do. I can tell you what I would do. I would think about more. If I had, if you give me a 24-5 minutes, with not, I would probably think about moi. And if I'm in a phase where I'm uh, codependent, I would think I would conceive somebody else. You know, <laughs> I would think of somebody else being above or below, or I would be obsessed with somebody else. You know, same thing. There's, there's no difference. It's a it's a taken on something that doesn't exist. Like it's a creation of because in the moment, what's happening? Hearing, cold warm, heart beating, expansion, contractions of the... And then suddenly there's a... But moi, ce soir, what is moi going to eat? You know, it can be that ordinary, or how is moi going to end up? You know, And uh, that thing might be very tragic, or it might be absolutely wonderful, you know, or it could be anything about a certain moi. It's actually not there. It's a creation. It's a storytelling. And I get caught in this. And I spend most, most of my day like this. 
thinking about projecting a certain way, even if it's projected sometimes just a few feet in front, you know, when I reach the crackers and the grocery, you know, the moi that will reach the crackers and the, <laughs> the moi that, uh, you know, the moi that will be done with the day of work or the moi that will be back home or the moi that will be, you know. And all, every time there's an abandoning of life for a story told for an imagining, Im images, images. So I'm fascinated by images of moi opening the fridge door to get out <laughs> whatever, eggs to do an omelette, you know. So I'll, I'll be in the subway, fascinated with moi doing that, moi, I don't know, giving the bath to the kid, moi, you know. And there's this constant uh, abandoning of life. If it's not you, you could just think of Futuring or passing things about planification, anticipation, uh, wishing for the future. So, just to see how we're living in a world of concepts, conceptualizing, really being, spending a lot of time there. And then suddenly you come and you're invited to feel the breath, and it's so unusual. And you're like, oh my God, why, why would I do this? You know, like I want to go back to my, you know, addiction. Because that's the only thing I know, is to think about a moi that has not so much value or great value or that we don't know what's going to happen to it, you know. Really fascinated by that. Do you recognize something in this? I'm, it's, it's amazing. It, it, it takes the, the whole thing. And so, in this practice, what we do is we cut through this systematically, uh, pr progressively, patiently, humbly, de with determination, not giving up. We just come back to the reality of uh, what's here now, what's here now. And that to highlight at some point, hopefully, when the mind goes back, that it's actually an addiction, it's a fascination, and it's actually not happening. It's not true. It's a creation, it's a generation of the mind. And we're entranced by it. We delight in it, we're, we're cherishing it, we're adoring it. You know, something that is mind-made while life is happening here, now. One of the difficulties of the world of concepts And, and, and it's not just moi, it can be uh, the world of things and places. The work of meditation is a kind of sobering about what is actually reality. So when we're not mindful, when we're just living as we usually do with our habitual uh, attention, our, I would describe it maybe as superficial uh, attention, When we think of home, like think of home, whatever home is for you right now, think of home. When we're not mindful, we'll think that this is home. We won't know what is actually happening right now is that there's a production of an image that is, you know, has color and shapes and things. It's a, it's a, it's it's an imagery will think, no, 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 this is really home. You might be hearing me and thinking, no, 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 
It's really home. When I think about home, it's really home. The, the soberingness of this practice is to know that there's an imagery happening in the mind. Nothing else. It's not home. It's a thought. It's an ephemeral production of the mind. And so slowly we start clarifying this. I think I've been practicing for 20 years. I'm starting to clarify that. That my thoughts are not reality. They're thoughts. And deconstructing this slowly, step by step, I've noticed that my fabulation about the past are not exactly the past. Mm -hmm. They're not actually the past at all. They're present imagery. You know? And that my speculations about the future have nothing to do with it. They're just present time arisings in the mind, extremely ephemeral. That my thoughts about others are not others. They're symbols, images, uh, are, yeah, symbols, I'll call it like that. That when you think about somebody with whom you have a conflict, it's not that person. It's a present time imagery. And finally, everything related to self is also an imagery, a thought. Nothing, nothing more than that. <laughs> if we knew that really well, I think that would be pretty much the liberation of the Buddha. Imagine if you didn't believe your thoughts as being reality, what would happen? You know, when you think, when yesterday would arise in your mind, you know, you would think, oh, this is just a light and show in, in space, you know. It's not actually real. It's not heavy, solid, like it feels, you know. It's just, uh, it's a dream. It's a production of something. If you knew that, if we knew, we knew that, things would become so much simpler. Because what happened with concepts is a few things happen. One thing that happens is they get uh, the concepts seem permanent. They give an idea of permanence. So the concept. What is a concept? A concept is several things grouped together that we make one thing. So the concept of Pascal, for example, is in my mind that little thing that was toddling around in Notre-Dame-de-la-Rentide way back, you know, and it's this role, and it's mixed with uh, a certain neighborhood in Montreal, mixed with a bunch of that. I put all these things together, some some have uh, 30 some years, some are impressions from 20 minutes ago, some, I grab all this together and I make it Pascal. And it seems very solid. It seems permanent, no? It's Pascal. And then what happens? I start to fear for Pascal. Fear for this concept. I conceived something. I'm suffering for, from conceit. And it's painful. Because I don't know what's going to happen to Pascal. But Pascal doesn't exist in the first place. Do you see what I mean? The concept, the image, the Pascal that I, that I said, Pascal was there, and he was there to, at Christmas, this is where Pascal was, and, and now I'm fearing about Pascal, and this old, old age of Pascal, or whatever, you know, the loneliness of Pascal, or the worth of Pascal, but it's a little, it's almost like a little comic 
character that I'm really worried about, but it's a made-up stuff thing. You're like, it's not made up. What are you saying? Somebody's calling it. <laughs> you know, no problem. Um, so, um, so the con- conceit has the problem to it that it makes things permanent. And when we start living in a world of permanency, it's problematic for us because then we're in shock when things show their impermanent nature, which they have. We cannot understand how somebody who existed cannot exist anymore. To us, it's incomprehensible. Why is it so? Although there's been birth and death since the beginning, it's never going to be otherwise. Although it's extremely obvious, for us, it's absolutely shocking. Why is that? Why is that so shocking? Is it shocking for you? For me, it's absolutely shocking. I cannot understand the few times in my life where somebody existed and didn't exist after. It's, it's the weirdest thing ever. Weird and in some cases extremely painful. Uh, you know, confusing and, and devastating. And I mean, there's probably not enough words to describe the the range of what can be felt around this. Why is that so? It's because we've conceptualized something. We made it intrinsically it. Like, it's the mind that did that. While this time, life was dynamic, alive, flowing, in all kinds of ways. Things were appearing and disappearing the whole time. But we keep gathering, 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 keeping together. It doesn't, hap- it doesn't happen in reality. It just happens in the mind that gathers like this. Whatever you was even 20 minutes ago is absolutely completely gone. Death has been there the whole time. It's actually making the whole thing possible. It's what makes the whole thing. Life and death makes the world of dynamism that allows speech right now, that allows weather. You know, things are happening, but we don't. We don't. We stop things with concepts. Not only do we stop and make permanence, but we identify. So there's this impression, wrong impression, mistaken impression of moi, me, mine. We really fall into this completely. My husband, my child, my house, moi, my opinion, and we start owning, and it seems totally real. It doesn't seem arrogant or conceited to do that. It seems that it's a natural thing to do. But the more we get, pay attention, the more we start n- pay attention to what? To life being alive, vibrant, changing. We'll notice that everything in time, maybe we'll notice that everything arise and pass due to condition. It's interrelated. There's never been a single thing that was existing intrinsically by itself. Nothing was existing apart from the meaning we were giving it, from the life that was given to it, from everything else. Do you see what I mean? And so we might think that something has an existence in itself, and if we pay really attention, we'll see that it actually doesn't. It totally is immersed in the matrix of reality. And it's, it's alive. So when I think 
of things as being mine, and I'm shocked suddenly that it's not mine anymore, it, sh- it shows my misunderstanding. Absolutely natural to have misunderstood stuff in this way. But I think maybe, that's certainly why I practice, maybe that's why you come here, to clarify this so it hurts a little less. So we live a little bit more in uh, aligned with reality, where in reality, nothing can be claimed as mine or me. It cannot, because it belongs to nature. It belongs to life that... Uh, I can't own any intelligence or ideas or things. I can, on a very relative level, on a very small kind of, almost like play, mm-hmm. like a, like you know, a play when we play a play on stage. A play is not real. We're like, let's pretend it's real. Let's pretend you're my sister. And now we're really angry at each other, you know. And that, so it's a play. It's not actually totally true. You know, and so the way we own things is con- conventional. On the conventional side of things, we can say we own things, but we cannot own things for real. Absolutely, it's not possible. None of it. Try one thing: health, not yours. There, alive, worth taking care of, not yours. Memory, not yours. The other, certainly not. Any other, not yours. You know? Pleasure, my pleasure. I was having a good time until you said, "Was it really yours?" It was not clearly yours. If somebody could take it in one little comment, you know, it was not your pleasure. There was pleasure; it was experienced, but it belonged to life, you know, and it came and it went because of life. You know, it came because of the taste of chocolate, and it left because somebody said something nasty. <laughs> it was offered by life and taken back by life. You know, and everything else is like that. But for us, it's like, no, I own, and it's very stressful to own because we fear of losing. You know because we don't know if others are going to agree that it's ours, you know, or if we're going to be able to keep it. Or some things we own, we're identified with, or we're fused with, or we have appropriated, and we're ashamed of. You know, and so we're like, it's not me, it's not me. So it was never me, but it's there. <laughs> there is sometimes, uh, you know, stupidity. Sometimes there's stupidity in me, often, you know. If I'm identified, it's extremely painful because I could be ashamed for the rest of my life for something said, you know. If I recognize that stupidity is part of nature, then it'll say, okay, so that didn't work so well, (laughs) you know. And I'll be able maybe to release it and not be irresponsible, be very responsible, but not stuck with. So the work of of practicing meditation to me, my understanding now is to patiently undo my uh, wrong understanding about self, about permanence. Uh, and so I sit there and I pay attention. And I'll notice that uh, actually even sound, sound is not mine, that's clear. It's, it becomes really clear. 
Even hearing is not mine. It happens by itself. There is life, there is health at that level here. And so hearing happens by itself. Hearing happens. And the more I practice, the more I calm my mind. Because if I'm busy in the world of concept and my ideas of tonight and next week and the rest of the year, I won't have the capacity to enter that subtle realm of in investigation. But if I quiet down a little bit and I'm, I'm really there for the experience of hearing, I'll notice that it's, there's been wrong appropriation. Do you see what I mean? That hearing happens. It's so funny that I made it moi, me, my hearing. It just hears. Hear, hearing happens. It doesn't need to be owned. And in the same way, emotions pass by, and thoughts pass by, and I'm like, oh, am I thinking or am I receiving the thoughts? The more I pay attention, it, it keeps changing. Like the me keeps changing. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm being thought. You know, thoughts are landing in my mind. You know, so am I the vessel or the emitting or the recepting? The more I pay attention, the more the identification uh, appears to be flickering, actually, changing. It's my opinion. And later somebody, oh, you, apparently you said that. No, I don't say that. I don't think that. You know, and like the moi, the identification, flickering, changing associations and And so by paying attention, I'm deconstructing false beliefs, false views. I'm uh, discovering how things are perceived. They're not exactly like that. They're perceived in a certain way. Through the filter of culture, of maybe thousands of years of biology, this, everything led to this mistaken view. And there's a way to undo it. And why do you want to undo it? Because it's the heart of suffering, says the Buddha. It's at the heart of our suffering. So, a number of days ago, somebody, a friend, sent me a, sent me a, a recording of um, it was from a French radio show in Switzerland, and uh, they were. Uh, they were uh, uh, having this conversation with this woman, I forgot her name, Yolande Durand, something, C or S, and Duran, probably uh, maybe Spanish background or something. And so what happened to this woman? She has a mother, working mother, uh, no interest in spirituality whatsoever, just doing her things. And, uh, you know, busy be between work, raising the, the kids and uh, and whatever else, the relationships and the family and all, all this. And she said one day, it's a few years back, she was, I think she was in the living room organizing stuff, you know. And she said suddenly there was this, something happened extremely simple but totally changed her life. And I won't uh, be able to, I was just listening to the radio show so I'm, I'm not... I didn't listen to it 15 times to report exactly as, but but the thing that happened for her was this identification. She just suddenly, without any practice, and it happens, you know, with as many cases like this, Eckhart Tolle, uh, 
Byron Katie and so many others. You know, uh, she said she was just like this, and suddenly she just found out, like this, that she was not who she thought she was. That there was a Yolande who was a mother who was a w- working, and there was thoughts and stuff, but thoughts were not hers. Uh, there was definitely thoughts. There was definitely a role. There was definitely all this. Everything was there, but she had taken it literally, like first degree, fused. She was fused, and suddenly there was diffusion. There was definitely a body that was there. There was definitely uh, thoughts that would come by, and things to do, and like this. But none of it seemed to be her anymore. And she said it was so incredibly liberating. She said, wow, I just laid there for a little while and enjoyed the liberation. Like before I was stuck like, like this, like, oh my God, you know, the, you know, the kids, the dinner, you know, she was fused with everything and stressed, stressed, you know. And she said, suddenly, boom, there was all this. I could actually continue, continue work, continue do things, you know. But there was not the sense that this was all me. This was there and life was seems like there was no identification with anything but she said there was there was definitely these things were happening they were had been happening the whole time but i had mistakenly take taken them personal C- conceit created a self around all of it i hear i think i breathe i i like to tell that story and i like to hear that story because it highlights to me she says it's not like she disappeared you know, like it's not like, oh my God, I disappeared. She said everything was the same. It was just like a slight little thing was different. It was not me. It was, there was all this. And so she became really happy, and it was a problem for her family. <laughs> <laughs> and so they asked her to see a psychiatrist because they're like, what's wrong with you? You know, you're not freaking out. You know, like. Um, <laughs> about this and that and uh, even there was a, a problem with one of the child and and she uh, she was she was uh, it seemed like she was uh, she was she said no this is part of life in life there will be death and disease and it, it will be there it's part of it you know like I'm not freaking out about it's it's totally part of life everything's in order so interesting and so they, they had her uh, go to the psychiatrist, and she said, I did, I went, because maybe she was a little curious. No, I don't think she was curious. I, would, I was curious. <laughs> she said, I did it to, to, because they wanted it, my family. And the psychiatrist, she, said she met the psychiatrist a few times, and the psychiatrist said, you're beyond psychology. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, you're not, uh, you, you have spiritual emergence, I'm going to put it in, the, in my language, you know, like, but you... You have no problem. You don't have a. You're not schizophrenic. You're not uh, having a psychosis. You're not because there's. You don't have a problem. You know. You're actually functional, and you're happiest, happy as can be. You know. <laughs> and she said. She and when the uh, the person asking her on the f- on the radio show. So what's there? What's there? The question was something like this. She's like, there's only love and benevolence. And joy and uh, and preciousness and amazement and 
and et voilà, that's, that's what's there, you know, there's space. Well, she talked a lot about space. It's extremely spacious and loving. And, uh, and so, and she talks about Yolande, you know, she's like, yeah, Yolande, there's, there's a Yolande, you know, and people project a Yolande, you know, and they, and, and I play along, you know, like Byron Katie talks a lot also in this way, you know. So the practice here is a practice of deconstruction that is progressive, like this. This is the technique we're doing here. Because, you know, you can hope to be Yolande or Byron Katie, or, but who knows if you're going to get lucky, you know, and if that's going to be given to you to actually wake up. What is it? That's the word. To wake up to the fact that actually, honey, it was not personal. It was not describing you. It was stuff that was really happening. There was really impatience, and there was really, uh, I don't know, uh, sensations and all this, but it was not yours. You know? It's even hard to conceive for us. But the job is not to conceive it. It's not important to conceive it or not. The, the, it's to actually f- uh, start to feel it and highlight the... And so in this practice, we do it kind of systematically with sensations, you know, First, it's my hand. My hand is... And then the more you pay attention, it's a little field of life. It can be pretty quick that you're like, oh, yeah, what I call my hand in the... Uh, what is the expression in the f- uh, image of speech? What, what is the, the... There's an expression in English. Figure of speech. I say my hand. But when I pay attention, I notice that it's its own field of tingling. You know, it's nature. Do you see a little bit what I mean? Oh, and when I say my heart, actually maybe with a few months of practice or years or decades or lifetimes, maybe I'll notice that there is a heart space. There is a heart space. But why did I take it so personal? And maybe I'll notice this because sometimes I want and then I will again, you know? Like, oh, there is a space of ease in there, or of benevolence, and suddenly, I want, you know? It's attacked by a desire, you know? Take, and then suddenly it's like, I want, and I'm sure, I want to make sure that I get, and I'm going to do everything I can to get, and there's an identification. And at some point in practice, wisdom will come and say, oh, there's a strong desire here to be seen. Oh, yeah, it's not mine. But there is a strong desire to be seen. And then, oops, it starts to undo itself, liberating, liberating, you know. Thoughts, like we just finished a retreat, and it seemed from what I was getting, I'm not sure, but from a few people from the circle at the end, there's a few people who were saying, oh, I'm actually starting to question my thoughts, that some of, some of the thoughts that come by, they're not so mine, and they're not describing reality either. Wow, the value of a thought just dropped. You know, if it's not yours, but it's a conditioning, you know, I've been conditioned to think I'm worthless, maybe because of my gender, or because of my age, or because of my skin color, or because of, you know, oh, that thought of self-hatred is not mine. It's society's thought, or... Like it's years, decades, centuries, millennia. Like, of course, this thought lands there, and it actually doesn't even describe reality. 
describe a made-up reality where some people have more value than others. It's actually n absolutely not true. But somehow there's a belief in it and a taking it personally, uh, kind of buying into it. Do you see the liberation possible? It's like, oh, suddenly the whole system relaxes. Oh, my God. Like, I'm scared of that voice that's going to tell me that I'm worthless. It's like, oh, actually it was not true. It's a mistaken voice. Mm. And it's a conditional voice. It's not personal. And it's not describing reality. Well, honey, thanks for <laughs> your little offering, but you, you know, like the whole thing about the Wizard of Oz, you know, going on a quest to find out that the big, strong, powerful voice is a little mistaken voice, you know. So that's what we do here. And we do it by paying attention to sounds and just entering a different relationship. That the uh, preconceived idea about it is, I hear, I hear. I could never investigate this. I hear. And now we say, pay attention. Oh, hearing is happening. Oh, we just entered Yolande's word, world a little bit, you know. She's invited us in her world where things are not so personal. You know. And ideas come, it's like, oh, this one's not so personal. Even the sense of self, at some point, maybe we'll relax. It's like, oh, it's not just so much me who's there, but there is presence. There is being. It might not be so personal. It might not, might not need an overlayer of me in there that adds stress and contraction and tightness and fear. So the dangers of living in the world of concepts, conceptualizing, telling stories all the time. So every so now maybe you can think of this when you start telling a story that you're actually training the mind towards uh, identification towards uh, uh, solidity or permanence where there is none. You know, it's interesting. You know, like it's going to be harder to indulge, <laughs> or it's actually good to know. Okay, if I go there, I'm solidifying that view. Is that the view I want to solidify? Really, you know. And solidifying the other also. Retelling the story of how bad you said when you were, when you said that, and when you, 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 make it really solid. When the actual thing said is long gone. You know, that moment of unskillfulness arose in nature, was really there. We're not forgetting. You know, we're not... You know, we know there was really a moment of unskillfulness, but... It's not existing anymore. But no, I'm going to make it permanent. And I'm going to remind you. <laughs> and I'm going to make you identify with it. <laughs> and I'm certainly identifying you with it. You know, And everything's going to stay like this, and we're going to suffer for a long time. <laughs> and I'm happy about that. That's the only gratification I get, is that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> Questions, comments? I worked in high school. 
Yeah. And I'm teaching mindfulness. Yes. And I get all the students to say, a thought is just a thought. <laughs> Great. And they look at me like, are you sure? <laughs> but I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's so liberating when we notice that insight, you know, vipassana, insight. It's a noticing that is of a deep nature, like more, like it's a real, raw, full encounter with the unreal nature of a thought. That's very liberating. So somebody can tell us, and we can want to believe it, you know, but still we're like, it might be true, but oh my God, I still, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But to actually pay attention to breath, pay attention to sound, and then, s- and then notice how a thought lands and vanishes, you know? And, and be liberated in this way is very powerful. Did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if it works for other people, but this practice, I find that I tries to reinforce that thing particularly for aging, right? That it's trying to sell us something to, to change that. And mm-hmm. how an advertisement or you see somebody or and you think you need it and then you devalue what's there because yeah. you need to be like that. And what that triggers inside me, I'm quicker at catching. Yeah. And not buying into that world view. Huh? Or realizing yeah. we have bought into it. Oh, yeah. Right? Because usually yeah. I do buy into it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it gives me some space or distance. I can't totally discredit it. Yeah. Well, maybe that would be helpful. You know, yeah. Whatever. Um, so I have a little bit more of space. Yeah. Yeah. S- yeah. And that's also what we call inner ethics, huh? inner clarity that you get to see for yourself if, you know, what is suggested by society has or not value as it's suggested. You know, you don't have to believe what is said. Even what, like, when Yolande, this woman in the interview, says, everybody thought I was crazy because I was not feeling sad for something that everybody else thought it was sad. You know, and they thought I had a problem. I had the I was the one who was sent to the psychiatrist mm-hmm. because I had I was completely at peace with what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, they thought she's crazy. You know, to think that this is not a problem. You know, mm-hmm. and and she, and she's and you know maybe we would know the story and we would say, oh my God, she's crazy if she can't feel pain for that. You know, and she would say, and the way she was repo- reporting, there was it was a love and a deep, deep, deep understanding, but almost dangerous for her to have her view, you know, because people would say, no, you know, it's... So, um, yeah, so we get to clarify for ourselves, this is the independence of of, uh, the Buddhist path, you know, the Buddha was saying, you don't have to believe anybody, you will see for yourself what has value and what has not, what is personal and what is not, and what, you know, you can identify with or not. To see how quickly a thought creates an emotion, just if you're watching TV and you notice you see a picture of a cereal or pizza and you want it, it's immediate. Yeah. So, in the world of concepts, there's three big mistakes that happen. 
So there's the mistake of uh, making permanent something that is not. There's the mistake of uh, making mine something that is not, or that it could be mine, desire, you know. And the third mistake is the mistake in the world of thoughts that doesn't happen in life, is the mistake of perceiving satisfaction where there's none. Like the promise of satisfaction. And so suddenly you see the pizza, the chocolate cake, the cereal, whatever, and you think satisfaction is there. And then you get to the experience, and there might be gratification, but there's not going to be ultimate satisfaction like in the mind there was. You know, It'll be good, and then it will have the nature to be gone. Because <laughs> impermanent, not mine. Mine would mean, and Bud- the Buddha would say that, would say, if, if you think it's yours, it should be able to stay around. If it's really you and yours, you know, but then it goes, that taste, you know. And it was not satisfying. It was not absolutely satisfying because nothing can be completely satisfying. It's not in the nature of things to be completely forever satisfying. Maybe in the rapport, in the liberated, you know, in knowing deeply that things cannot satisfy fully, maybe there can be an experience of deep satisfaction, but not in things themselves, you know. This is really challenging. We can hear this and go like, no, don't. You know, I'm okay with not mine. I'm okay with impermanent, but satisfaction. Don't you dare, you know, touch that. And it doesn't say that there's not richness and depth and beauty and uh, meaning and everything, but it says that because of impermanence, nothing can be completely satisfying forever. It's not a possibility. Things are way much too fluctuating, uh, unstable, unreliable, changing, conditional, contingent, uh, shaky to offer uh, complete permanence and satisfaction. In the Buddhist thought, there's no thing as such as a soul. And uh, there's no, the Buddha said, I looked everywhere, I didn't find one piece that was intrinsic and separated and had its own thing to it. You know, everything I saw in personality was conditional, in body was conditional. There was nothing that I found that had its own life. Everything was part of every, of the rest. And it doesn't mean there's no, that there's not an experience that is different there than there, you know, and, and a, a story. But, um, yeah, so that's the, the discovery. So, so the way I understand the path is that we go from a pre-egotic uh, state as a newborn, you know, where we're undifferentiated, if that's the word that goes there, you know. And then we learn your hand, mama's hand, you know, and we... Your toy, Nicolas toy. No, my toy. No, Nicolas toy. <laughs> and we and we try to build a healthy ego. And if it's a, we created an egotic state, and but it's a bad ego. You know, we'll do some psychology to clarify that. You know, to help 
have a better, healthier ego. And now what we're talking about is uh, trans-egotic. It says, yes, honey, we told you that it was your hand and it was your thoughts and it was your emotions. But actually, now that we've clarified that, let's go a little further now. The next step, we're not going back, but we're going a little further. It's not absolutely yours because it's going to go. It's not exactly yours because it came from the culture or the parenting or the different events that happen. It's conditional, you know, and nothing is not conditional. You know. So, uh, and the idea of that is that it would be liberating. Otherwise, there's no point. Liberating from what? From stress, suffering, confusion, disappointment, uh, expectations that bring fear. You know, is it going to happen? Is it going to last? No, it's not going to last. Okay, so that's a lot of concepts <laughs> for uh, talking about non-conceptual things, but I think it's, uh, I think it has its importance. And anyway, for me it does, because that's helped me in my research and my paying attention. So maybe we can take a few uh, moments here to, um, to just sit and see uh, what arises. Maybe not think, take uh, our thoughts or opinion too seriously or to not to identify too much with them. So notice the formations, how life uh, is manifesting right now. What formation came to be, maybe impatience is there, or confusion, or appreciation, or awe. Maybe it's not such a personal formation, but definitely there. And similarly with the experience of the body, maybe it's not so much your body, but maybe it's the, the elements that are there, the earth element, and the fire element. fluidity of the water maybe there is breath in you the air element maybe all of this body is uh, just nature. <laughs> Maybe also everything of the inner life, of the inner space. It's not that personal. It's different universes. And each one of us, a different e inner universe. Alive, but not, maybe not separate, not isolated.
this is the the form life uh, takes right now. This is the form it took this afternoon, and it's already collapsing, moving into something else, gone. Like one of my teachers says, it's not you who's going to be liberated, it's everything else. It's not a certain you who's going to be liberated, it's everything else. Thank you so much for considering such crazy ideas. <laughs> uh, I hope you enjoyed it some, and I hope some of it might uh, will turn out to be liberating. And uh, and I wish you a really good um, year because it's 2017. It's true, it's not another year. Although we're there f since millions of years, it's only 2017. <laughs> It's absolutely true. It's not conventional. It's true, true, true. It's intrinsically 2017. It's not just an agreement. <laughs> and uh, as you come out, you'll see that there's, there's two bucks, one bucks to uh, put uh, money to uh, support uh, the center here, and another one to, uh, to support this non-self that also needs very much to uh, stay warm and fed and uh, all this, you know how it is. <laughs> you, you have one too. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> two weeks? Okay, two weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.